Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SAS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the power of human connection in community building and sales. Today, we have our guest, Jen Allen Knuth, joining us. She is the head of community growth at Lavender. Uh, if you guys don't know Lavender, Lavender.ai is an AI email assistant that helps you write better emails faster, double your replies, and help save you time. Together, they are providing comprehensive tools and guidance for crafting compelling sales emails. So welcome, Jen. Glad to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So we're, we're in a state, you know, in the economy of 2023, uh, founders listening in, marketers are always looking away on how to generate more, more sales, right? And, you know, one of those ways is through email, which we'll get about. And the other one is about community, which we'll talk about. But before we talk about one part of that, that... You know, maybe a lot as a topic that's not maybe spoken about as often is around embracing vulnerability, right? So I would love to maybe start off with that. How does embracing vulnerability create a unique superpower in any field, um, including sales, and help people stand out? What would you What would you suggest to them? Sure. So before I came to Lavender in January, I spent eighteen years um, with a few different companies, but they were all kind of like through mergers and acquisitions. So essentially the same organization. Um, And in 2020, I remember having a significant shift to how I thought about content and community and the role that vulnerability plays. So essentially, if we think about most jobs, but particularly sales, there is just this notion that we have to act as if we have complete confidence, right? And if you scroll through LinkedIn or Twitter or anywhere where people are posting content, I think one of the things that gets old really, really quickly is just this sense of, I never make a mistake. Everything I do is perfect. All of our customers are perfect. Everything's amazing. And it's this, you know, I think we, we see it a lot in our own, you know, personal social media where it just gets tired. You get tired of hearing people claim to be experts. You get tired of people saying like, there's one way to do something and things are dead. And so in 2020, um, it really sort of hit me. And I realized as someone that was a little bit unique in the sense that I stayed in a frontline sales role for 18 years, I had a real opportunity to take my experience. And instead of talking about all the things that I now know as a result of that experience, Rather to back up and say, gosh, if I could go talk to Jen 10 years ago, here's all the stuff I would have told her she was doing wrong. And here's what, how I would have helped her think differently about it. And so in order to do that, it required that my content, everything I was doing, embrace vulnerability. Because you can't say that you got better at something if you never admit that you were bad at it to begin with. And so mm. it became something I was really, really comfortable doing. And then once I became comfortable doing it, I just found myself really gravitating towards company and creator content who led with this imperfect picture. And I think in a sea of content and in a sea of noise where it's like, you know, everything we do as an ROI of a thousand X, like everything's amazing. <laughs> really kind of like a, a noise breaker to see someone acknowledge, I didn't always have something figured out. Or we as a business didn't always have something figured out. I saw a post actually a couple of weeks ago from a founder 
who talked about something they got wrong in their product launch strategy. And I read the thing top to finish. I Mm. never would have read that post if it was all about everything they did right. Because again, Mm. there's so much of that. So in my mind, to kind of sum it up, what it is, is it's a differentiator. It's a completely different motion that many people are too afraid to embrace because they think it portrays weakness. When in reality, I think it portrays authenticity. And I think that's what connects us as humans. So, I mean, it seems like what you're saying, so embracing vulnerability, but also embracing and sharing your failures, right? And then how, how do you say that translates to, so, you know, you kind of have some kind of emotional connection now because you're, you know, you're seeing that vulnerability from another and the authenticity. How do you see that translating into sales or, you know, so if I'm a sales person, let's say in an organization or a founder, uh, you know, I want to start sharing some of my content that talks about, hey, I've tried this, this, and this. I've sent, you know, X amount of emails and I've got zero replies, right? Um, Let's say I post a content around that. How would that, you think, help me, you know, generate a sale down the line? Yeah, because I think as a reader of that, so let's take that Mm. scenario and play it out. As a reader Mm. of that, if I'm just seeing you're doing something wrong, you need to do this instead, what it creates is this offense-defense dynamic where I, as Mm. a human being, start to protect and defend why I do what I do. Because to do anything else means I'm admitting I'm wrong. And we mm. as human beings rarely say when someone points the finger at us and says, you're wrong, who doesn't know us, we're rarely like, you know what? You're right, complete stranger. I am wrong. And you're completely right. And what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. However, if you contrast that with thinking it from the perspective of, if I take that piece of content, right? let's say I'm a founder, mm-hmm. and I say, you know, one of the mistakes that I made back when I first started selling was I used to send really long emails all about what my service did. And the Mm -hmm. reason I did that is because I felt like my job was to compel someone to see how great we were as a potential partner. But what I learned is that people need you to be interested in them before they're interested in you. And as a result, the way I shifted my strategy is to stop talking so much about me and start getting sharper at observation hunting. If we take that kind of choreography, Mm -hmm. that is very, very different and effective because what you're doing is you're taking the reader on a journey of the beliefs and assumptions that sit under why they do what they do. And you're allowing them to play into that, right? So it's like, if I'm reading and I'm saying, okay, I'm also one of those people that sends 300 word emails. And I'm seeing, okay, I also think I do it because I, I believe my job is to impress someone with who we are. And now if I look at their their new belief and assumption, it gives me an opportunity to reflect. And so what we're essentially doing is we're, instead of telling someone like, go from A to B, we're like, A is here, but you've got all these many steps in between it. People don't tend to change unless they agree with the beliefs and assumption underneath it. We just rarely see content that speaks to that. We see much more content that's like, I do this now because it works. Mm. So just by kind of relating, right? So now you're, you're attracting folks who probably can relate to you. And I was like, hey, I also do that. That's, you know, instead of saying, hey, there's all the success, you know, internally you're probably saying, I don't have all that success as well as, but now when you're saying, hey, I've done similarly, where I used to send long emails too. Now I can probably say, hey, maybe I've got to switch it up because, you know, it may be a mistake here. Exactly, right? You're relating to the learning journey as opposed Mm -hmm. to just showing a destination. And that was Mm -hmm. something I learned in the the years I spent at the Challenger Sale organization, the the authors of the Challenger Sale book, 
was people rarely do something because there's a benefit. People Mm. do something because they believe that the risk outweighs their comfort with current state. So we have to keep that in mind as we're we're thinking about sales because sales is behavior change, right? I'm not going to change my behavior if my beliefs and assumptions tell me what I'm doing is okay. And so Mm. that's something I think is often overlooked in how we message, whether it's content, you know, collateral pitches, whatever to our customers. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. Now, moving towards kind of the, you know, one part is kind of embracing the vulnerability. And the other side that a lot of folks are trying to use is to leverage their sales is utilizing AI in their sales process, Uh, particularly now, I guess, email, email marketing, email communication. Um, how do you, how have, what have you seen? I mean, obviously you guys use that as part of your, your technology. How have you seen that impact the effectiveness and efficiency of the entire sales process? I mean, yeah, so this is a fascinating thing to watch. And Mm. if we look back in history, what we see is that sales has this tendency to slam their hand down on the easy button. So the easy button is anything Mm -hmm to prioritize efficiency over effectiveness. So examples of that are like, you know, when sales engagement platforms hit the scene and suddenly we went from being able to send, you know, 20 emails a day to now we could send a thousand emails a day. So what do we do? We're like, let's send a thousand because more is better. Mm-hmm. And I think with any new introduction that that shakes, you know, shakes status quo the way that AI or sales engagement platforms has, I think we see this curve where people immediately jump on board thinking, wow, this is going to be so much easier and therefore it's going to be better. And then they start to have this like realization where it's like, oh gosh, maybe more is not better. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what we're seeing in AI. So if you look at like a lot of the AI companies that are in the, the cold email space, most of them are in the camp of, hey, make the job of cold email easier for you by using AI to generate it for you, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the the, the general stake on that. Good. Where we kind of fit in is like, we shouldn't be optimizing around making things easier for us. What we should be optimizing is make things easier for the reader. Mm. And as it relates to cold email, we make things easier by understanding what makes buyers out of their minds angry that they receive in their inbox and mm-hmm. guiding sellers to remove that stuff from their, from their sales emails. So like, I mean, people laugh about it all the time, but one of the reasons I hope you're well is like such a trigger for yeah. so many buyers is if you look in a buyer's inbox and there's 30 cold emails today, 29 of them start with that, right? So it's, yeah. it's not about the fact that like, I hope you're well is bad, but it's the fact that there are recognizable patterns that frustrate buyers. If you go to ChatGPT today and you ask it, write a cold email for so-and-so at X company, the very first line it's going to write is, I hope you're well. <laughs> and so I think there's this intersection where we tend to get like illusioned by this, this notion of like, oh, this is going to be so much easier. When in reality, like we're playing this more game and there's going to come a point where we're trying like triggering spam filters and we're being shut off from deliverability because we're just totally abusing the privilege of email. So the last thing I'll say about it is like one of the most eye-opening stats and sales off came out with this data actually is if you looked last year um, versus this year, mm-hmm. this year only 4% of cold emails 
are actually personalized. And I'm not talking about like, hey, I saw you went to Penn State, like go lines. I'm talking about like real personalization. Mm-hmm. Of the 4% that are, they have a 1,200% increase in reply rate over the 96% that are not. That is up from a 100% increase last year. So what that tells me hmm. is actually this amount of noise that's happening isn't making email an irrelevant channel, but it is making the stuff that stands out because it's personalized really stand out and really yeah. get a high. So I think that start really starts to get interesting when you start to look at data like that and say, gosh, maybe the way isn't just to blast everybody because it's easy for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can say that even from personal experience. I mean, those, I hope you are well emails. I mean, I get those all the time and I don't know how much they actually mean that I hope I'm well. So I, I, don't, I don't know how much, you know, how authentic that statement is ever. I don't know what the right wording is. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's now that you can see, right. I mean, you receive all these cold emails. I, I can clearly tell that you know, this is generated from an AI script and, and, and uh, yeah, and I'm getting more and more of these by the day, but I'm also, Ignoring most of those because I know they're they're not personal. So yeah, I, I can I can agree with that. I guess on a personal level as well. Um, you know, beyond lavender, yeah, I guess like you said, these these are tools to help you become more effective, right? I mean, that's the idea. Versus, you know, there's also what people are saying to be more efficient. But you know, beyond lavender, do you have any favorite AI tools that you like to use? You know, whether it's sales or other other you know, related tools that you'd love to share with their with their listeners. Yeah. So like at Lavender, we use um, Clary's Wingman. Um, I love a tool like that where it's, it's you know, a call recorder and it's giving you a summary of what you're, you know, what, what happened during the call and who said what. Like that's a, that is a play that I really enjoy because it takes what is a task that is riddled with human error. Like you've either got to be great at multitasking or you've got to sacrifice great listening so that you can take notes while you're on a call because you don't want to miss anything. Like that's a technology and AI technology where I'm like, that is for the betterment of a salesperson because now they can completely focus on the conversation. They can be a hundred percent tuned in active listening because they have confidence that AI is helping them in the background, Mm. but it doesn't like negate the need for them to do something with that content on the other end of the side. So like, I keep coming back to this idea that sales is innately human. And as much as we want to just throw it to the bots, like being a human in sales is always going to be a differentiator. So Clary um, by Wingman is one example. And then there are other places. um, So I think the the tool is called FinChat AI came out, or at least I saw it a couple months ago, where... um, I think we all know with ChatGPT, it goes up until September 21st. So if you said like, hey, how was Marriott's last quarter performance? It would be like, I don't know. Um, This company has a ton of public companies, 10Ks, investor presentations in there. And what it's doing is when you type in the company is it's giving you a summary of it. Like that's another place where I think that is lifting sellers up because it's removing an excuse of like, I don't have time to read 50 pages of an event and an investor presentation. Well, you don't have to anymore, right? So there are plays for efficiency that make a ton of sense with AI. I just don't get as excited about them when the the efficiency plays come down to communication. They're great for research. They're great for summarizing. But to me, like human-to-human communication is still a very human thing. Right. I completely agree with that. Yeah, this is a great tool. I haven't heard about finchad.io. And... I guess Clary Wingman is now Clary Copilot, just for people listening. But we'll oh, yeah. add those links to the show notes. So great, great recommendations. Thank you. Um, 
So on the one side, we're talking about, you know, communication. So you said, you know, it's not as, you know, you don't, you don't recommend it as, as much when it's coming, when it comes to being authentic, authentic in your communication. Um, what, what do you see as in terms of potential challenges of using AI generated content for, you know, communicating with others and, and trying to be more authentic? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things is you're when you're using AI for communication, it's always going to favor scale, right? So I'm sure you've received these emails. A lot of people that I talk to have where you get an email or you get a DM and it's like, hey, I saw you posted the other day, really impressed with your work. Now, here's what I sell, right? Like it's it's taking the most basic of triggers and trying to pass them off as personalization plays. I think who knows where time will take us, right? Like I fully expect that ChatGPT will get way more sophisticated and AI will get way more sophisticated and who knows who's to say like what it can do. But right now, the human element is being able to take information and piece it together to tell a story. AI is still terrible at that. Right. It's like I can see if a company, um, let's say if a company is hiring for a bunch of AEs in an enterprise segment, but I look at their website and I'm like, mm, that's weird. They only have mid-market size logos. It is the very human thing for me to say, it's interesting you're hiring for enterprise AEs, but I don't see enterprise logos. Mm. It looks like you might be moving up market. Right. And that's a hypothesis. I might be wrong, which is why. We have to lead with unsure tonality, but it's the piecing together of it. It's not just the blatant statement of, I see you're hiring for an enterprise AE. Those Mm -hmm. two things are dramatically different. So I think that's where we get into the human differentiator is our ability to be able to piece together different things to tell a story that might make someone say, hey, they're paying attention to me. This is more than just a mass outreach because, you know, I popped up on a list of having posted in the last 30 days. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that statement. I guess I saw a post recently from you know, a video on LinkedIn where I think it was a, I don't know if you've seen this video, where there was a sales call being led by an AI voice yeah. uh, for a Tesla an order. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're getting close. I mean, that was pretty effective. I mean, the way he responded, the way he, ha- he, you know, he walked him through that, that conversation, I mean, it was almost as good as having a real person on that call, right? So... I think we're getting there, but uh, maybe I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I don't know. I like, I'm super skeptical, right? Like that (laughs) felt to me, like you could, like one thing that was so irritating listening to that was like (laughs) three to five second pause. I'm like, that would happen. I would have hung up and been like, I don't know what's going on, but like I have no time for this. It's also very different. I think when you've got someone who sounded very brand obsessed. Like that man was mm. like, my friends drive Teslas. Like I just <laughs> yeah. want a Tesla. Like yeah. he was so gung-ho for Tesla. Like yeah. I think that's yeah. a little bit different. And I think the thing I worry about is companies say, hey, that worked. They got the call booked. We mm. can do it. But I sure. would really question if you're selling like compliance software, if you yeah. can make a call like that yeah, yeah. a compliance officer and have them... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah. you know, like most things, it's like, sure, could it work in some use cases? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the guy was pretty much already sold. He just needed a, a little bit of information <laughs> to get us out. Yeah. There was no selling needed. Yeah. He was like, Tesla yeah. called me. Amazing. So cute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a good start, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I understand on kind of the, the sales component of, you know, I think we're on the same page of, you know, humans still needed as part of that, that, that process. And, 
Um, you know, the other side that we see that is effective and what you want to talk about is around the community building. And I think that's a huge play that maybe I think AI still hasn't touched. And um, there's a lot of effectiveness there. Um, what, what, what do you see as kind of a strong way of implementing a, a program uh, through, through a community that we can learn from? Maybe other companies are doing and that you can share with our, with our listeners. Yeah, so I will say what I appreciate is there's lots of different forms of community. So community became a bit of a go-to-market buzzword Mm -hmm. like a year or two ago, right? And so all these communities Mm -hmm. pop up, all Slack communities, and then all these community roles. And then when things kind of turn down, I I don't know about you, but I saw a ton of community roles like Mm -hmm. out of work, right? So I think... The initial motion was like, hey, we'll build it and they will come, not recognizing that community takes a ton of work. You need to have an actual purpose for community. So Mm -hmm. when Lavender approached me about this job um, after I left Challenger in December, my initial response was like, hey, if you're looking for someone to build community, I can give you five names of people that have actually built communities and have done a great job and are going to be way better at this than me. And what the founder said to me was we don't want to build community like everybody else. Like the, And I said, well, what's everybody else's mind, like motion in your mind? They said, you put someone in charge, you build a Slack community, you ask a bunch of annoying questions in there, you try to beg and pull people to come in, and then you, know, you try to tie some ROI back to the investment. They said, what we mm-hmm. want to do is we want to like think of community as being in the places where our customers are already learning. So for mm-hmm. us... We have it nice, right? We're selling to salespeople, commercial roles, GTM roles. Mm-hmm. We'll live on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does. So I'm not saying this is this approach works for everybody, but I could either go and try to build a community on my own mm-hmm. and try to pull people into our place, or I could spend my time saying, if salespeople are already there, how do we just create things, do things that make them want to spend more time learning with us? And that's been mm-hmm. the motion. It's not to say it's always going to be our approach to community. I could totally see us building a community in the future with a distinct purpose. But for right now, I think our philosophy as a business is the way you build community is by helping people. And when you help people, they refer you. When they refer you, you get rapid fire awareness. Like, I was dumbfounded when I joined this company that there were six employees when I joined. Like Mm. they seemed huge because Mm. they just did a really good job of helping people. And in turn, those people talked about Lavender. In turn, the people that saw that started to use Lavender. And so I would just encourage people who think about community and say, hey, too big of an expense. Mm -hmm. An alternative way to think about it might be, do we actually know where our customers are going to learn right now? Is it Mm. events? social media? Is it, you know, discord channels? Like, where is it? And then what do we have to say that's helpful to their problems? Not helpful to pitching our solution, but like for us, you know, we, we, I have random people that email me and we'll be like, can you take a look at this email and let me know if it makes sense? And I'll Mm. draft it. Right. And it's like lots of little moments like that, that seem insignificant, create this really large burn. And so if you know where your customers go to learn, great. If you don't, figure it out. We should know that already. If you if you do, then you can start mining where they're learning and saying, what are these common questions that we keep seeing come up? And mm. then we can start to create content points of view, things that are helpful based on that. So community becomes as much about us learning about our customer as our customer learning about them. So, so in your case, um, 
you, know, you mentioned LinkedIn as one. So there's all these groups where people are posting on LinkedIn. And then there's also, let's say, these, these Facebook groups or uh, let's use Facebook groups. There's a lot of Facebook groups we talk about, you know, outreach, email, marketing, etc. Are you like, what would you be a strategy? You would, you know, look at comments or, or posts that people are talking about their email, their marketing strategy, and then maybe you would comment or would you, you know, same with the groups. Um, or would you be posting regularly in those Facebook groups and sharing maybe results of some of your customers? Um, and then my, my follow-up question on that is, okay, you mentioned all these folks who are now hiring. They want to you know, allocate budget to community. Um, you know, who is the right person to, to kind of create that content or engage and, and help build that within other communities? Yeah. So great questions there. Keep me honest to make sure I answer all them. Let's take that, let's play out that example of Facebook mm-hmm. communities and let's talk about a non-sales customer environment. Cause I know, you know, LinkedIn is an easy case when you're selling to sales. Mm-hmm. So I worked with a company um, who was selling garage doors and like um, security cameras for mm-hmm. lots of different use cases for like an individual homeowner, for homeowner associations, et cetera. And one of the things that they were struggling with is they were still super reliant on their channel partners, which was like, you know, Bob's garage door shop down the road. And Bob's Mm -hmm. garage door shop was run by some like 80 year old dude who hated technology and was totally uninterested in any of their really new cool tech products and services. So Mm -hmm. the business was like, we're never going to hit our new product growth targets if we don't get people to buy this, but our channel partners don't want to sell it. And so what they realized is a big, big segment for them was actually homeowner associations because Mm. homeowner associations, particularly in like cities, are super worried about package theft, crime, you know, unwanted entrance into the building. And so they said, instead of showing up like, and they almost always have Facebook groups, Mm-hmm. But they did it say instead of showing up and trying to be like, look at how much our solution helped fight crime, which is an ad yeah. where people are looking to learn and share, not buy. They mm-hmm. said, what if we create content that is helpful to homeowner associations because they don't have to create it on their own? So like, here's a list of the top 10 reasons for package theft and alternative things you can do as a homeowner association and tenants instead. And so what they did is they said, we recognize that in these communities, security is a common theme. Let's create content that helps them understand how to keep their business more secure. And let's not lead with our product, but we'll put our name at the bottom, right? And so people know the source is reliable because they have a brand name that's associated with security. But instead of selling, they're looking to help. And that's going to lead to more conversations in communities than the like completely solutions-oriented stuff where people are tuning it out. They're like, that's not Mm. what I'm here for. Mm. What are you sharing? Is this a a blog article or just a little post of what you see that could be helpful? The format doesn't really matter. The format matters to what are you seeing in the community. So if the community shares mm. lots of articles, great, mm. put in an article. If the community mm. is like, hey, we do a you know a, a homeowner association meeting once a quarter, mm. like okay, if you're doing a you know a focus on security next quarter, we can give you a framework. Like it, it really like there's no easy answer. It's another place where I think like we have to stay away from scale. You've got to understand what. If, the communication preferences. How are they showing up in the community? Is it just text Q and A? Okay, great. Don't even create an asset because it's going to look weird if we throw it in there. Put it yeah. in a text 
So I think this is where it comes down to being a student of how your customers learn. And the last thing was, I think the last part of your question around who does it. Yes. The person who does it is the person who will have the most credibility. It is not Mm. always the most senior person. So like at my company, when I was at Challenge or my last company, I was an AE. There were way more senior people in the business than me. But Mm. what I had was an ability to speak to other AEs, going back to the initial place we started at. Like I was very relatable. I had the trust and credibility of those people. So if I said something, it's not like a cold, it's not like being lined up and we're like, we are, you know, we subscribe to the school of Jen, but me saying something meant something different because they saw I was actively helping, helping, helping. And mm-hmm. so that they trusted my motivation is to help, not sell. Versus if someone far more senior showed up, who's to say if that would have worked? It, I don't right. know because we didn't do it that way. But I, I just, I encourage you, it's not always has to be like, the CEO or the founder, think about those people who already have the trust and credibility of your audience. In some cases, it might make sense to explore like creator partnerships for that if they've got mm-hmm. strong partnerships. Makes sense. I guess the one risk to think about there is, you know, like let's say you, you build your brand and, and you kind of become an influencer in that space as the expert in so email marketing. Um, and then you kind of leave to, you know, new new company as you did now, you know, working with Lavender. Uh, I guess they, the brand may lose some of that. Or, or you may start getting messages from your previous company, and now you're maybe trying to build a new, um, you know, community based on different uh, different product, right? So that's another thing. Maybe some people, founders, may hesitate around building around a single employee, right? Yeah, and I think so. Todd Clauser, who's one of my colleagues here, he um, has a framework he calls Easy Mode, which is mm. basically an alternative to having like a single evangelist, like I had at Challenger. Because you're absolutely right; like you do risk something when that person walks out the door. Mm-hmm. And I, what I'm in favor of is like if you're a founder, you can have a lot of confidence. If you're the evangelist, you're probably not going anywhere, at least not at your yeah. own choice. But yeah. if you are hiring people, like I just think that recognizing that you know, we are where we are with the state of communication and the state of noise, the things I think, I believe is that the weight that we carry in the social channels where our customers go is going to start to become more important. So if you look at Lavender, right, there are like six of us that have really strong followings. They didn't hire us for that. They hired us for our ability to do the job. But the reason we got the job was because we also brought that to the table. So if I left Lavender tomorrow, mm-hmm. Lavender would not see a difference, right? Because it's not wholly dependent on my voice. And that's where mm-hmm. I think it's like really smart to have multiple different voices who maybe speak to different levels in the buying organization, different mm-hmm. stakeholders you have to go after. So you're not dependent on one. Love it. Yeah, this, this, has, been, this has been awesome, Jen. Appreciate uh, you sharing all these insights. And I think our, our listeners would appreciate it as well. Um, so coming come to the, the end of this podcast, we'd love to shift gears and move towards the personal, more rapid fire questions. Um, sure. feel, do it. feel ready for this. Let's do it. All right. Um, let's start off with uh, the first one, which is what's one activity you enjoy outside of work that gets you into flow state? Oh, music. No question. Music. Live music, okay. listening to music, taking a walk with music, just music. Love it. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, What's one piece of advice you wish you had known? If you can go back, let's say you would tell your maybe 20-year-old self or 25-year-old self. Oh, um, this is actually very easy for me. 
Hmm. Um, I would tell myself that my definition of professional is completely wrong. Um, and the reason I say that is I felt for a very long time because I didn't consider myself a natural salesperson that I had to play the role of a sales professional, use mm. words that I would never use, do things I would never do. And the more comfortable I got in my own skin and the more I actually brought like my sense of humor and who I am into the equation, the better my sales got. So be who mm. you are. Love it. Be authentic. Yeah. That's what we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Easier said than done, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow Lavender? Meaning, I don't know if, if there's anything, what keeps you up at night these days? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's balancing the desire of like, gosh, I want every single salesperson in the world to have this with reality mm-hmm. in the sense that like lots of people are doing tech stock consolidations. And so really being mindful of how do we add clear, clear added value to all the amazing tools that already exist in the set? And how do we be super clear about like making sure sellers understand to use it in the the best possible way? That's, that's always going to keep me up at night in this job. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I think most, uh, most founders or SaaS companies these days face that. Yeah. Uh, who or what are some of the best three resources you can share with our listeners? This can be books, can be mentors, maybe people you follow in the space who you say have been most instrumental to your success over these last few years. Yeah, um, I that's an easy question. So from a book perspective, it's The Challenger Sale. I wouldn't have stayed there for 18 years mm-hmm. if I didn't love it. Completely mm-hmm. reshaped my perception of, or my perspective of what I needed to do as a seller to actually help my buyers um, solve problems. So that's my number one book. Um, in terms of mentors, two that I will add. One is um, a woman by the name of Amy Volas. So she's the founder of Talent Avenue Partners. Um, she used to run a community called Thursday Night Sales. And the reason I pick her is because she is someone that is so intentional about how she shows up. She's someone who is so helpful to her community. She's community first. Um, and I think she's just one of those people that like shoots you straight and tells you what you need to hear. And I think that's probably the most important, single most important thing for me as a mentor is someone who can say hard things um, with the very best of intentions. Very nice. It's uh, Avenue Talent Partners, right? You said? Oh, yes. Yes. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, Jen, what does success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, business, financial, life, there's no right answer. Success is going to bed, not stressing about work and feeling good about how I spend my time with my family, my dogs, kids, my friends, just work-life balance. I certainly for a long time, my goal was to get financial success. But once you have it, you realize it's not as sweet as it seems. And so the other steps are being more meaningful. So I think yeah. that's the that's the stage of life I'm in right now. Love it. No, that's great. This, this has been great, Jen. Um, you know, lavender.ai, you know, I'm just checking this out. This looks like a fantastic tool. Um, if, if anybody listening in wants to get in touch with you, learn more about you or Lavender, where's, where's the best place to go? Yeah. So for me, make it easy. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Jen Allen Knuth with a K. Um, Lavender, like you said, lavender.ai. And you'll see on there, we just launched Lavenderland yesterday, which is kind of like a Netflix style entertainment hotspot of really good, high quality, entertaining, but also educational research about um, and content about emails. So check us out there too. That's cool. Great way to stand out from the rest. Awesome. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate you joining uh, the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I had a blast. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.